Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in the virtual cupboard with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And also in our cupboard today, zooming in from Paris, is living legend Nick Kent. Hello, Nick. <laughs> Hello, Barney and uh, friends. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like a sort of super group from 1971 or a children's television program yeah what right ginger baker and friends yeah. <laughs> sitting in with mark pringle we're so thrilled to have you on the show nick we're looking forward to talking with you about the enemy well i'm delighted to be here Oh, good, good, great, excellent. And we'll also talk about Iggy Pop. We've got an audio interview from 1977 with the great Iggy Pop. We will talk maybe about Nirvana as well. And we will, of course, be talking about your first novel, Nick, The Unstable Boys, which has just been published here in the UK by Constable. But look, let's start at the beginning. You are the rock journalist that every 15-year-old boy in Britain in the early 70s wanted to be. And I was curious to know <laughs> Sorry, what an you... An eye has just opened in like, <laughs> yeah, a spooky yeah. way. <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to know what you were doing at 15. Was there a Nick Kent for you? At the age of 15, what was I doing? I was doing my mock O-levels. It was 1967. And I saw Jimi Hendrix the Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett. Who else was on that bill? The Move. Incredible. They were great. Yeah. And uh, the Nice, who were also great. That was my uh, highlight of that year. It was, I was a schoolboy, yeah. fundamentally, but it was the summer of love. Yeah. And as a result, I was on the out. I was like, you know, Benny King and I, who have nothing, with my nose pressed up to the, the window pane, looking at all the colour and the... I, I remember I was living in Wales at the time. I was born in North London and had lived in North London till I was eight. And then my parents moved up to Wales for better uh, employment. My father uh, started working for TV up there. Right. And I was stuck there. And it was a miserable time. But it, when I was 12, I managed to see the Rolling Stones, a very early incarnation of them. And that was a eureka moment because i actually got to meet them i spent two minutes talking to brian jones and having a very nice conversation he was very nice to me unlike what his legend would might lead you to believe he was very friendly to that's me. nice to hear when i was 14 i saw bob dylan and the band at one of those now legendary concerts that was yeah. deafening no one ever talks about that but it was deafening and that was part of the reason people were booing him. But no one ever talked. Everyone talks about the stylistic change he was going through. But the fact that he was playing at twice the volume of any electric musician in the British Isles during 1966 is kind of brushed to one side. Yeah. I mean, that's why people were booing him, because it's too fucking loud. Excuse my language. Excuse my French. <laughs> So 96, but in 1967, that was the best gig that I ever saw in my life because it was a package. It was the end of the package tour days and it was Jimi Hendrix headlining when he, with the experience at the end of a year that had seen him do Monterey Pop and he'd been playing constantly. So he was right at the top of his game and the drugs hadn't started to diminish him yet. He was right there. He was white hot, okay? Then you had the Pink Floyd, who, and that was right. This was a month before Sid Barrett was ousted from the group. 
or not out well. About two or three months where he was ousted. But it was a month before Dave Gilmore was brought in. So the the transition period was, was, was beginning. And he was, well, he was the opposite of Hendricks. If Hendricks was white hot, poor old Sid was stone cold. Um, he didn't sing. He didn't play guitar. He just stood there. And once in a while, I think he had a metal cigarette light, which he moved up and down the fretboard. That was his musical contribution of the night. That's his gimmick. That was his thing. <laughs> Roger Waters had evidently take, already taken over from him because he did the singing. And it was a Roger Waters song that set the control of the hearts of the sun that they played for like 15 minutes. That was their set. But Sid needn't have been there. The nice who were, Keith Emerson was jumping on his organ and sticking daggers in it. And it was, it was the first step in prog rock. It was, it was actually a moment, it was like a sort of like, whoa, prog rock begins here because that's, the nice were the first. You were there at the birth of prog. Because they played classical music, right? They played Rondo by Mozart, but they rocked it up like, uh, you know. And, you know, I just got it down to two chords, which is what, and like banged it out for six minutes. But if you'd seen them live, you would have been genuinely gobsmacked because the guy was like Hendrix, but with a fucking huge hammered organ, which, I mean, if it drops on you, you can break your leg, unlike a guitar. And so the Nice were the first band of the evening and they set the bar very high. But the move and Hendrix completely, the move were just, that's one of the great un, truly unheralded groups. To me, the move were good in their, well, they weren't as good as the Kinks in that Ray Davies was a better songwriter than Roy Wood. But the move were a way better group than, than the Kinks as a live band. When, when there was a five piece, they were magical. When that guy Ace Kefford left, something went. Yeah. Joe Boyd always slightly sneeringly referred to them as beer drinkers' psychedelia. The movie, which was very true. Yeah, he got <laughs> yeah. it. He got it right on the money. I mean, they they had more in common attitude-wise with punk. They were very aggressive. The the difference between all the other guys was Hendrix on the same bit. Hendrix came across in a totally non-aggressive way in sixties in Wales as in the rest of the British Isles. Racism was way more overt, and that night when I saw I saw both shows, it package tours, there was a show between six o'clock and nine o'clock for the thirteen to sixteen, the teenage crowd, right, the top of the pops viewers, and then there was one between nine and twelve, a, sec- a separate show for the college audience, the eighteens to twenty-one show. There were no black faces in either of those audiences. You know, the only black person in that in that hall that night was Hendrix. So he played to an all-white audience and to white 13-year-old schoolgirls as well at a time when racial tensions were high. So that alone, that, that was weird. <laughs> I was just going to interject a question that we ask any writers who we have on the podcast, which is, was there a, any one piece of writing about 
rock and roll or any one writer that you, I guess, would have kind of discovered in the late 60s that made you want to write about these extraordinary musical experiences you'd had? I was hugely influenced and impressed by several of the pieces that were coming out in Rolling Stone in the late... Rolling Stone was the real sea change in rock journalism. There's rock journalism before Rolling Stone arrived in 1967, and there's rock journalism afterwards. It, it, it set the bar way, way higher. But in Britain, Nick Cone, yeah. a what bopaloo bopaloo, and, and his, some of his articles in the Sunday, I think it was at the Times he wrote for, is, is, if, if memory serves. Sunday Times. Yeah, the Sunday Times he wrote. But a what bopaloo, McDonald, Murray, and I were all hugely influenced by that book. In fact, I read it again about three or four years ago. It's one of those books where like every 10 or 20 years I could have reread it. And I was bedazzled by how much I'd taken from it. I'd forgotten right. just how much I'd actually taken from it. And it was like, oh, yes, I, yes. I, th- I thought I'd invented that, but that, that son of a bitch Cone had done it before me and I'd just basically <laughs> taken it. I just completely just whoop, yeah. okay. I just like okay, you know, professional steel amateurs borrow. So I mean, at least I could sort of, you know. But the fact is that a lot of Nick Cone I've taken. I I got to know Nick makes Cone sense. in in recent years because his books come out in France. His book, his, all his books have been published in France, and it was someone's bright idea to put us together for a joint interview. And I got to know him quite well. And uh, he, I like him. He's a little bit bitter about the fact that he's not better known. We've tried to make him better known by having, we've asked him to be on the podcast. We've asked to have, anyway, when we're talking about Nick Kent, not Nick Cohn. So let's, let's <laughs> save that for another day. What I wanted to ask you was how you got your skinny leather trousered butt in the door at Friends magazine, which was a kind of emulation of Rolling Stone here in London? Well, I'm very, very easily, I just walked up the stairs, quite literally. The door was open <laughs> onto the street. By <laughs> the time stuff. that I arrived in Friends, you could just walk in and say, I'd like to write something. And they'd say, great, because at that time, they didn't have any writers. They didn't have any money to pay writers. And the people that were hanging around there, it was in Labrook Grove. And so there were a lot of well, for want of a better word, deadbeats. I mean, there were a lot of... It would become this place. For want of a more flattering term. We're talking about early 1972, which is the tail end of the hippie era in Labrook Grove. I remember going a year before, I started at Friends and looking around, and it was like Bohemia. But very quickly, that lifestyle became un- unsustainable. Bad drugs were starting to come in, not heroin yet, but it was starting to creep in, in little corners. And people were suddenly going from LSD to to downers. Mandrax. Mandrax. That was was the drug. (laughs) That was the drug. And And so I walked into that scene, and basically because people were on Mandrax and smoking far too much dope at that time, like chain smoking it, they weren't doing much, and I was full of energy, and I, let's do this and let's do that. Because most of them were just there to moan about 
yeah, the man, you know what I'm talking about, that's sort of making sort of rather glib political, uh, you know, wow, wow, wow kind of uh, statements against the establishment. I was like, well, I want to write about this music. I, I, I'm not that interested in politics, but music, yeah, that's what I want to do. And I, and I, and I was, I was just using it as a vehicle to write, write about music, and to write generally. I wasn't that enamoured with some of their underground theories. The idea that everything should be free seemed totally impractical to me. You know. <laughs> Did you meet people like Mick Farron at that point? Oh, yeah, I did. And he was very nice to me. Mick Farron was like the king of Ladbroke Grove at that time. He was, uh, yeah. he was, you know, he had this big head of hair. and He had these kind of political connect. you know, like he knew Jerry Rubin and those guys over in America. Yeah. He was very, very nice. He He could see that I, the, the smart ones could see that I had potential because even though I was very much a work in progress, I had a lot of energy. I was one of those high-energy young guys, and I very, very quickly... See, I understood more than maybe even Charlie Murray, who was almost of my generation, but was of two years older. Now, Charlie Murray was way into the blues. He was way into the late 60s blues boom. He loved B.B. Mm-hmm. King and all, all those people. Whereas me, I was, me was like, okay, everyone was waiting in 1972 when I started writing for the Beatles to reform and the six, and, and, <laughs> and, and Sid Barrett to come back from whatever torpor, state of torpor he was in and kind of, you know, the 60s to, to be, you know, recreated again. And I knew that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And I was also young enough to know, like, well, you know, to hell with the 60s. I loved the 60s. I love, and I loved that music more than any other decade in rock. But I knew it was over. And I knew that now this, and now it was the 70s. And it was down to people partly like myself, but mostly like people like David Bowie. Who, I mean, at the exact same time that I started writing for the underground press, David Bowie debuted Ziggy Stardust. That was a big moment in the culture of, of, of rock. And you reviewed that album, I think, for Friends, didn't you? I probably did. I certainly wrote about Bowie for Friends. At first, I, was, uh, I wasn't too sure about Bowie because that, this is when I met Iggy Pop and the Stooges, who were being managed by the same guy. They weren't that keen on the theatricality of Ziggy Stardust. The idea of moving rock into theatre was one that that went against the grain of the authentic rock crowd, if you like. And the, the taking it into theatre, Ziggy Stardust got very, very into theatre. There was a lot of, and also there were mime artists. And if you've got a mime artist on stage, you are backing the wrong horse. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Anyone who brings a mime artist on stage, and they had Lindsay Kent, right? Sure. And it, there was a lot of that. Yeah. on When Bowie and Ronson and the other two guys in The Spiders from Mars, when it was those four playing, they were a great rock band. Indeed. But when he got his freak show pals in to do their mime stuff, that's when the rock crowd said, oh, ooh, hold on a sec. Now, this is... 
this is a, this is a step in the wrong direction. So my 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 feelings about Bowie were were coloured by that in the early okay. days. Nick, let me ask you, because I don't think I've ever heard it from you, how Nick Logan came to essentially recruit you for the NME and how the NME changed so radically almost overnight with writers like yourself. Well, he phoned me up at Friends Office. I was at Friends Office. I didn't go in there every day. I should point out that when I went to Friends and offered my services and then handed them three reviews, which they were then printed, I returned and they made me the music editor (laughs) (laughs) for two pounds a month. You actually got paid. Yeah, I got two pounds (laughs) a month. But but I learned, this is a very important thing, free records. I could get free records. This was completely mind-blowing to me, free records, okay? I didn't even know that disc jockeys got free records. I, I was always amazed at how John Peel made a living as a disc jockey because most of his records that he played in the late 60s were, were imports, and the imports cost £3 each, you know, to, to, to buy. And he only made 40 quid a week from... The BBC as a Radio One disc so jockey. You were struggling to so do said, well, the math. How's this guy making any money? <laughs> well, yeah, right, all right. I was working out how, and I even thought that the guys that were playing the, you know, the top ten records had to go to the shop and buy them to play them. <laughs> That's how naive I was on the sweet on the business innocent level. boy that you were. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so as soon as I discovered that free records, I was like, it's like I'd I'd won the sweepstakes. This this was like. And, of course, you could sell the, the ones you didn't want to keep. What I did then, I, I'd swap them for, like, records that I, that I actually wanted, like Smokey Robinson records and, and the Miracles and old Tamla Motown records and old Jerry Lee Lewis records. And I built up my collection of records from the 50s and the 60s by selling off all this 70s crap that I was getting for free. That's how a lot of my musical education occurred. I discovered John Coltrane, basically because the birds recorded Eight Miles High, and one of the birds talked about John Coltrane in an interview. And I said, well, I really like Eight Miles High, so I better check out this this John Coltrane guy. The first time I heard John Coltrane, I found it too kind of visceral. I mean, the sound of his horn was, whoa, hold on. But then, you know, you've... You discover my favorite things, and my favorite things is not that different from Light My Fire by the Doors. In fact, Light My Fire by the Doors is ripped off, the, particularly the middle section from My Favorite Things by John Cott. So you use that as a bridge to get into jazz. And so my early years as a, as a rock critic were best used by me going back in time and listening and actually checking out I mean, I knew the hits by Jerry Lewis, but I didn't know his albums. Sure, I didn't know sure. George Jones. I knew Graham Parsons, and I'd read about Graham Parsons talking about that I didn't know who George... And so I used that as um, just to get a fuller education. 
frankly, that's the music that I that has stayed with me. There's a famous quote. I mean, one of your most famous pieces from the 70s was the three-part Beach Boys Brian right, Wilson yeah. was, classic, yeah. which which I was just riveted by. I, I remember I remember vividly reading those, and it made me think of this great quote. And I I want maybe apocryphal, but the quote is that you went into interview Brian Wilson, and and he looked at you and went. Man, you look more like a rock star than I do, which I mean, probably wasn't very difficult since Brian never really looked like a rock star. But it, A, is that true? And yeah, B, at that time, it you was, did look it? like a rock star. You know, we would see you in the pages of the NME looking sometimes cooler than Keith Richard. Your wardrobe was incredible. Oh, never, never, never. <laughs> that, 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 that's an unattainable <laughs> goal there, Barney. I'm sorry. Even Keith at his worst. Not a. There was something about, <laughs> I've got to defend the man there. No, but you the, look, I mean, the point had being it, that you looked like a rock star we, and you were like our guy we on the We were all inside. students and he was the master. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried my best and I frankly, I, I was, you know, like I said in that Observer piece, I, I was in the right place. I had the right look and I had the right instincts, but I was on the wrong drugs. <laughs> <laughs> what would the right drugs have been? Staying on the pot, and I don't even think that would have worked. I think if I'd stayed straight, but that would have been impossible in the 70s because I would never have gotten behind the green door, and that's really what part of my, part of the Nick Kent thing, right? That, that was my, you know, he was the guy that got, you know, he got right backstage and he found out what was going on, and he not only you know, saw the drug taking, he partook in it as well, you know, wow, you know, which is all true. But there was a, a, a huge, a very steep price to be paid, not just in my personal drug addiction, which lasted for a number of years. Those times, <laughs> looking back on those times, I felt that I was so lucky that I was untouchable, that I was bulletproof, and that God was smiling down at me. When you're young and dumb, that's the kind of thinking that if you get lucky, right, and you're young and you're dumb and you're arrogant, you can really get into that kind of mindset where, you know, I can go into any situation and can come out unscathed because in a, a number of situations, that's what exactly had happened. I soon found out that, you know, I went looking for trouble. And for a couple of years, I was able to you know, find trouble and come out unscathed. But then at a certain point, your luck runs out, trouble comes looking for you. And when trouble comes looking for you, oh boy, you've got to watch out. That Brian Wilson piece was when trouble. You know, I'd, I'd been doing this for three years now, and I'd started out just burning with passion. I wasn't a great writer. I was a work in progress, but I, I had this passion, I had this energy, and I had this drive to go out and find that fucking story. Of all of them at the enemy, I was the one who was going like, let us do investigative journalism. Let us, look, let us be as good as Rolling Stone. Let's not just be as good as Melody Maker. No disrespect to Melody Maker, but let's, be as best, even be better than the best. Let's let's do our own investigative journalism, and that and those Sid Barrett and Brian Wilson pieces were my attempt to do that. But that's a lot of hard work. 
And also you're dealing with people who where there's a wall around them. They're not people that are easy. To, you know, Brian Wilson was not someone that was easy to get in touch with at that time. And you were also dealing with a lot of damaged people who were surrounding him who were prepared to talk. So you were going into this quagmire of Los Angeles. I mean, you've written a book about L.A. weirdness. You know how it's like. You know what Los Angeles is like. In London, at least, they had a kind of discipline, a work schedule. In Los Angeles, they can go for three months without doing a stroke of work or even answering the phone. I mean, I was writing about a man who was walking around in his bathrobe, just walking the streets, going into massage parlors, wandering into some some stranger's house looking for drugs. That's the kind of guy I was writing about. It was a very depressing story because, like, if I'd been writing about Jim Morrison, who wasn't a particularly nice guy, or I'd been writing about Phil Spector, who really wasn't a nice guy, that would have been one thing. But Brian Wilson was a very sympathetic person. Behind all his eccentricities, there is a very, he's a nice guy. He's someone that your heart goes out to. It was heartbreaking to see what was going on with him. And it was heartbreaking to see that how everyone was using him. Because at the time that I was doing that piece, the rest of the Beach Boys were, that, that endless, what was it, endless summer, that record that had yeah. went to number one. They, they'd been the Beach Boys without Brian for several years. They'd made good music, but they'd not had really major hit records. And then Endless Summer, which was all old Brian Wilson songs, was released in 1974, and it went to number one in America. And a, a, a similar compilation went to number one in, in Great Britain at the same year. And so the Beach Boys said, okay, we've got to have Brian back. Yeah. And he was at his very worst then. The, the late set, he was really, really at his worst. So mm. it, was a, yeah. it was a horrible, it was like all the, all the most corrupt elements in the rock industry were at work there. And there was a lot of, oh, they were just bad. It was very, very bad and very sad to, to, to write about. I think we're going to need to speed forward a little bit here. I fished this out of my... <laughs> Can you see this, Nicholas? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> right. For those of you who can't see this podcast, I'm holding up my copy of the subterranean single, My Flamingo, which for a brief moment, Nick Kent, the journalist, was going to become Nick Kent, the rock star. This is a pretty damn good record, frankly. It was released on Jake Riviera's demon records and um, so one of the pieces that we're featuring on the home page along with three of yours nick is chris salivance's oh, <laughs> profile of you from 1981 yeah. which i re i remember reading it the week it came out i think it's called the almost legendary nick kent story and it, and it coincided with the strub trainians and i think he talks to your ex-girlfriend chrissy hind at that point and 
that article and also one that Mark added the other day by Sandy Robertson are full of of sort of these uh, these sort of stories, these these wonderful stories of Nick Kent uh, at large in so bohemian punk London. Yeah. I mean, how many of those yeah, yeah. stories like milk bottles full of urine and 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 other even less sort of salubrious yarns oh, about yeah. you? Like, are they all true? Do say that they're all true. Well, they're not all true, but there are exaggerations, but they're basically true, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to say it. I don't feel, I, I don't feel proud of any of that. No. I, right, at this stage of my life, you know, as I'm one year before my three score and ten, you know, I, can't, I don't look back on my life and go, oh, boy, you know, you were living the life of Riley back then, weren't you, Nick? <laughs> but at the same time, I got around. I, that, that, that's the one thing that, well, it's not the one thing, but it was one of the aspects of my life, my chaotic life, that when I look back and I think, Jesus Christ, man, you, you got around. For, for someone that was, you know, getting as messed up as you were, you were still a pretty active son of a bitch because I, I was always able to find the right place to go to. If I was in the room, it was the right room to be in in the 70s. I don't know how that was. But I was like, you know, I was, I just, you know, it was there. That was fun. That was the fun part of it. But at a certain point, it turned very, very bad on me. I mean, I went from being very lucky. And then by the middle of 1975, my luck changed. And then things went very, very, very bad. It's all in that that second book. I wrote that Apathy for the Devil book. So I uh, I don't have to um, repeat it, but I still managed to sort of stay in there. I, I, it, it wasn't like I bounced back like Alan Partridge, you know, like you know, bouncing back. You stayed with Nick Logan for a number of years. I mean, he essentially, when you were sort of out the door at the NME because the culture changed yeah. there in the bouncy since the 80s, and I was there and I remember, I remember befriending you at that time but you found a perch a berth at the face and wrote a good number of long pieces for nick logan at the face and some of those are in the dark stuff which we, we must mention here is probably one of the most famous like rock books and successful rock was a collection of some of the pieces we've talked about that came out in 1994 tell us Emma, about your latest book and what prompted you to go back to you know, the, the 60s and 70s and write a story about some quite unappealing characters, yeah. let's face it. Well, there's, <laughs> there's this legendary band and the singer is just a complete C-U-N-T, basically. Yeah, yeah, the guitarist yeah. is a lot more simpatico, isn't he? I mean, when did you think, I kind of want to tell my version of that story? He's kind of flaky. And there's yes. the guy in the middle who's the writer. There's a dynamic between the rock star and the fan that always intrigued me. I remember going to the fan club president of Jerry Lewis's fan club president home. While I was, it was a piece of investigative. I've done an interview with Jerry Lewis and I figured that his fan club president would be quite a, a rugged individual. You know, like a, a and it was just a 40-year-old guy living with his mother who <laughs> preempted our conversation 
with a 10-minute argument with his mother about the fact that she hadn't bought chocolate biscuits for the guest, me, of course, <laughs> you know. And I very quickly, and then he sort of sat down and sort of looked at me and said, well, Nick, uh, why do you think Jerry is appealing to the, the young generation these days? And it was like this guy was as mad as Jerry Lee Lewis. But he was, I mean, he was the complete opposite. You know, I mean, you, you could have written a book about this guy. You know what I mean? So right, right. I, I was always I was always interested in, uh, and when I wrote the Sid Barrett piece, of course, every nutcase Sid Barrett fan who ended up becoming the pre, the president of some renegade Sid Barrett fan club got in touch with me and or would turn up at the NME, just would walk in unannounced. They were some real cases, as you can imagine. So the the dynamic between the fan, it, it was the idea, it started off as an, the idea of, imagine a Sid Barrett-like character when he was still alive, turning up at one of these Sid Barrett fan club president's house, just, just at the door and saying, you know, I'm Sid, I'm desperate, I got nowhere to go, will you house me? You know, what might happen? I mean, it comes from real life, actually, because, first of all, there's the story of Vince Taylor, who turned up at a fan club president's house, just like on the doorstep in the 70s, when he was like with a couple of paper bags with his worldly possessions in them, and asked to stay there. And all sorts of terrible things happened as a result. And so it's just, it's, that's what happens when yeah. the mega fan meets the hero, the rock hero. I mean, you've met Johnny Thunders, right? Yes, to, to, to my chagrin. Okay, yeah. okay. You've met, you know what the, these people are like vampires. They, when a yeah. fan comes up to them, it's how much can I take these people for? How much can I exploit them? How much can I corrupt them? And... Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm not saying that the boy is based on Johnny Thunder's character per se, because it's not. All these characters, I'd like to think, were created from the bricks up. I I don't use well-known or semi-known other rock musicians or stars. It's not a Romana Clay situation. Why don't we talk about one of your most famous, I would say, like friendships in terms of the legendary characters that you interviewed many times, and that's Iggy Pop. Because the first of the pieces, in fact, is the piece you wrote when the Stooges played that famous show in King's Cross in 72, and they were in London recording Raw Power, etc. That's the first piece that I wrote for the NME. Is it? Okay. That is the first ever piece I... In fact, Nick Logan phoned me up at Friends and said, apparently, you know Iggy Pop. We'd like you to do a piece on him. Because Bowie, Iggy Pop, and and Lou Reed, all all the artists that under main man management weren't allowed to do interviews. But I I kind of socialized with him on and off. Well, so, so, I mean, we just thought it would be a good opportunity to digitize and run this 1977. Because I know 
you interviewed him in 77 as well on the Idiot Tour. So I'm going to ask Mark to tell us about the, the week's audio interview. Yeah, this is, I'm guessing, March 77. Stuart Grundy interviewing Iggy, who's just on, he's, the Idiot has just come out. He's touring, Bo is playing keyboards in his band, I believe, at that point. But it's mostly about the Stooges, which for me is absolutely fascinating. And he, after some preamble about running, of all things, which is kind of the unlikely thing, <laughs> he kind of talks about Ann Arbor and Detroit, basically the band getting together, being total amateurs. He himself had been a drummer playing in a variety of bands. He was in Detroit, in Ann Arbor, but not part of the whole White Panther scene and actually having sort of a pretty low opinion of that. Talks about the first album, songs like Not Right and I Want to Be Your Dog, it's very engaging stuff. We'll play a clip at the end, specifically about the Angle Stooges. But he talks about he never regarded himself on stage as being this kind of sexy person. That the idea was actually was was this anger, the ultimate blowtorch of savage nihilism. He says, <laughs> uh, "Fair enough, fair enough." <laughs> Sounds like it came from a Nick Kent piece. <laughs> well, I probably did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says that his relationship with the audience is they come for fun and they come for action which is, I think, kind of very spot on when you're sort of talking about yeah, it is, I- yeah, Iggy. Yeah. He talks about John Cale actually very fondly. Uh, he said, yeah, John Cale really got us, you know, because that sort of discussion about that first album, some people claim that Barney's holding up the sleeve as we look. Then he talks about Funhouse. Jasper, do you want to play us the Funhouse clip? Absolutely. <laughs> I wrote Funhouse. Uh, the first album was co-written, and uh, Funhouse I wrote myself. In fact, uh, I wrote that most of that music in three days. I was I decided to get married after the first album, and the marriage only lasted three days. And I wrote Funhouse in my closet uh, because suddenly I found this person in my bed, and so I had to play my guitar very quietly at night. <laughs> And uh, after a few days of that, that's 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 why there are more musical passages on it because I had to play, <laughs> I had to play things that were not quite so quite so crashing. So so you have some of the boom 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 down on the street and all that. And uh, so after a few days, that marriage was over. <laughs> Subsequently, Funhouse was a colossal flop. <laughs> It's very interesting because, in a way, he's sort of saying that Funhouse was, to all intents and purposes, his album, not a band album. Well, Iggy is very fond of taking credit for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you say that, but actually, we, we could go on that that basis. We could go straight into the ne- next clip where he talks about Bowie and the Idiot, and he gives Bowie so much credit. Yes. It's just not true. Do you yes. want to play this clip, Dan? basis of the album is, is a co-written co-written between David and myself and uh, he played a very strong role in the music I can't give him enough credit and uh, of all my albums I've I've often worked with other people on my albums in fact except for Funhouse that's it, never really been a one man job and uh, I'm very pleased with his work on it I think he was fantastic he just he just hit he hit my feelings. Just, that album sounds the way I feel. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I was going to say, but because Bowie directed and was the scriptwriter. I mean, if you see The Idiot as a film, which I think Bowie saw it as, uh, with Iggy as in the starring role, but it, but Bowie was the the director of that film, and he also wrote the script. He was the one suggesting to Jim what lyrics to write at certain points. The problem with with Iggy that I and I'm talking purely on a musical point of view, okay? He was the kind of guy, and I remember James Williamson saying this. His idea of songcraft is basically playing two chords and just ranting over them, right? And then shaping Mm -hmm. that rant into a lyric. He's not into the kind of verse, chorus, maybe a bridge. That only came along when Williamson arrived in the group. And Bowie was another one who understood. Iggy has always had a very tenuous, he he can write a song, don't get me wrong, and has written a number of really good songs himself but what he really likes is to get like there's two chords just get that you know okay and just blurt <laughs> blurt out whatever's on on his mind so he he always needed a collaborator whether it was an and a someone yeah. and he also needed someone to for his voice his voice was not strong this is the thing he was a guy singing in a hard rock band and most like the guy Rob Tyner of the MC5, not the greatest singer in the world, but he had a strong voice. And mm-hmm. you need a strong voice. If you if there's loud guitars, there's a lot of loudness, you've got to have a voice that cuts through that. Iggy didn't have a loud voice. He didn't have a, anything like a Robert Plant voice. He had that deep voice. He had more of a crooner's voice. And that's where Bowie got it. Bowie... Well, by the time that Bowie and Iggy started working together, Iggy had almost blown his voice out by screaming. If you listen to Funhouse, it's more screaming than singing. And if you sing like that, if you vocalize like that for about three or four years, you will blow your voice out like bam. You will lose your voice. And so mm. Bowie, mm. the first thing he did was to say, okay, Jim, listen, work in your bar- your lower range. You know the the, the baritone mm-hmm. range work as the do the system midnight baby all that. Bowie taught Iggy how to sing. Before that, he was a vocalist. Yeah, I think that's very very interesting. I mean, it doesn't change the fact that for me, Funhouse is the probably the greatest hard rock record ever made. Yes, uh, I have to say, I think Mark probably yeah, yeah, would yeah. almost agree with that. So it's, it's, it's a very very engaging interview. It talks about reforming the Stones in, as you say, in '72. James Williamson, raw power, and goes on to the Bowie stuff. I liked him listening to this. I actually just found him a very engaging person. He, he enjoys Stuart Grundy getting things right. Stuart Grundy identified the Who song, which is the biggest Who song for the Stooges, and he's you know he's like, wow, you know, yes. you got that. It's, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's a good moment. So, but he is a chart. I mean, you know, my experience with I went to interview Iggy probably probably in about 86 or something, expecting, I don't know, to be very intimidated. And he was the most charming, funny, 
self-deprecating, actually quite humble, you know, guy that you could want. And it was such a great pleasure. I mean, he's such a, he's a sweetheart, isn't he really? I'm sure he's done all kinds of terrible things, Nick, probably most of them with you. But (laughs) He's got his own road to hoe, that boy. He's, he's, created is he's got his own trail of, of destruction to uh, live with it's got nothing to do with me yes <laughs> yes, yes absolutely it's kind of marvelous that he's lasted as long he's he's so fit now I and mean, that guy's gonna yeah. live to 100 you know yeah he's gonna outlive us all yeah. i think you know i mean it's him and keith richards these these guys well everyone thought that keith richards and iggy were the number they, they were the number one on the list to die back in the 70s I mean, they, you know, every, every, I mean, they, they, they were way ahead of the, you know, there was, then there was Greg Orman and Sly Stone and all these other people, but Keith Richards and Iggy Pop, how I related to them partly was, yeah, the drugs, it has to be said, but mostly because we were only children. We had no brothers and sisters. It's an important point because when you're an only child, it's a whole mindset. There's a kind of like you're special. Obviously, your parents treat you as someone special. And you've got that as well. But also you've got that loneliness, that sense of isolation. It explains a lot to me why we all got into drugs the way we did. And also explains to me why why we survived drugs the way we did. Because we were so used to being isolated. And when you're in deep in drug addiction... It's that sense of isolation that really ends up killing people. I mean, this is a good moment to jump to. You talk about isolation killing people. The third of the pieces of yours that we're featuring is the piece you wrote about Kurt Cobain for Mojo after he killed himself. Yeah. And I thought, so because there's a new Foo Fighters album just coming out, I thought it was an, uh, an opportunity to revisit a couple of things. So featured on the homepage this week, along with your piece about Cobain, is a piece about Nirvana from December 1990, way before Nevermind and Smells Like Teen Spirit. And it's just after Dave Grohl has joined the band as, I think, the drummer who really made Nirvana such a such an incredibly exciting rock band. So that's a piece by Push from Melody Maker. And it's just interesting. Kurt's still spelt with a D at this point. And he's just talking about how they targeted, he and Chris Novoselic essentially targeted Grohl. We, we need this guy to be our drummer. So that's interesting. And then the second piece is by Everett True, also for Melody Maker. And it's the first piece about the Foo Fighters in the UK press. And Grohl, it's 18 months since Kurt killed himself. So it's really interesting hearing Dave Grohl talking about Kurt and how he thinks about him every day, but decided that he would just go on, you know, in the vein that Nirvana made their music in. So there's, so there's those, those pieces. Also free on RBP are a couple of pieces about figures we have lost over the last week or so. The first is Hilton Valentine of The Animals, the guy who played that very famous guitar intro to House of the Rising Sun. 
And the second is about the extraordinary Sophie, who I'm hoping Jasper will tell us a little bit about Sophie. But maybe we should just remark on, I mean, the the passing of Hilton Valentine, the animals, you know, a very important 60s British R&B influenced band. Mark, did you remember House of the Rising Sun and other animals hits? Absolutely. I mean, he was interesting that he was one of the few guitarists of that period of Given that the, the Animals were a band who were obsessed with the blues, he wasn't a blues guitarist at all, Hilton no. Valentine. And that really distinguished him. As a child, as like a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, there was something wild about the Animals, which I found really attractive. Yeah, no, they, they, they were definitely part of the landscape. It's a, it's, it's a kind of funny piece, this, from for Rave magazine that you would have added some time yeah, ago, yeah. August 1964. It's basically Alan Price introducing the members of the group. So he says of Hilton, he's lean and looks a bit frail, likes laughing. When he does, his body shakes. Could do with a healthy suntan. On stage, he gets excited when he feels we're flying, stamps his foot heavily on the floor, bends his head over his guitar and sways like he's in a trance. The girls love it. I honestly don't think he hears them, though. (laughs) I love this. It's very rave magazine. Yeah. Um, Were you an Animals fan, Nick? Yeah, I thought they were good. I didn't think they were. I mean, they weren't my favourite of the the, the the British explosion bands, but I thought Eric Burton was superb. I, I've got to say that Hilton Valentine was the guy that actually arranged House of the... Alan Price was the guy that got the money. <laughs> but Hilton Valentine, according to Eric Burton, I remember reading an interview with Eric Burton where he said that it was, in, it was Hilton Valentine's guitar part that really yes. actually the arrangement and that the others just sort of locked onto that. Yeah. So the one thing about Hilton Valentine, he was one of the few guys that, you know, after the animals, you know, the original animals broke up, nothing was heard of him anymore. He never yeah. he never got a group together. There's not a, an obscure West Coast group because he lived in, he was living in he Los Angeles at the time. Yeah. yeah. It's strange because when I was writing that Brian Wilson piece, I was living at the house. You, you remember Ben Edmonds, right? Ben Edmonds? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, Ben Edmonds at that time, it's 1975, he was going out with a woman he was madly in love with. And this woman was double dating, was going out with him and Hilton Valentine. <laughs> that's my only... Oh, this is, this is the dirt we love. This, this is the scuttlebutt of the... Of the, of the, uh, <laughs> of the I never met the guy, and I never heard anything, you know, untoward about him. Or, but uh, it, uh, that's my only connection with the guy. Apparently, he was just okay. living in Los Angeles and doing as little as possible. I think that's really what he did for the rest. I think the animals got back together again at one point for... A short, yeah, they very did. They did reunite. Reunion. Well, I mean, that, that's a great story. So, very different from Hilton Valentine and the Animals <laughs> is the remarkable Sophie, who tragically died aged thirty-four on the weekend, I think, Jasper. Can you tell us a bit about her? Yeah, I mean, where to start with her? Because her death really is tragic and it's really affected a lot of people because she meant a lot to lots of people for lots of different reasons. But I think probably a good place to start is the music, which I don't know if any of you have listened to it, but it's at equal turns really abrasive 
and really sweet, yeah. syrupy sweet. It's hyper real in a way. It's it's hyper pop. It's very consciously, decidedly taking the idiom of pop music to its logical extremes as far as capitalism and marketing and advertising. But there's something brilliant about the way that she produced it because it's always about textures and about sound and about that contrast between really harsh noises that were all synthesized and those very sweet syrupy vocals. And her story is an interesting one as well because she was an anonymous producer. Nobody really knew who she was for a good few years when she was working with PC Music, which is a collective a label founded by A.G. Cook. And they worked together, an artist like Girlfriend of the Year, GFOTY and Hey Cutie. And then she produced, went on to produce tracks for Charlie XCX, as well as like Madonna's Bitch, I'm Madonna. That was produced by Sophie. So she was really establishing herself as a producer of other people's work. But nobody knew who she was, and the only photographs of her were like people, you know, clandestinely taken photographs of her DJing or whatever. But then in 2017, she suddenly came out as a trans woman in in a music video, which was the first time any press photography had been done of her, basically. And that that ended up being the first single from her album, Oil of Every Pearl's Uninsides, which is remarkable. And I found a review of that by Laura Barton in Q from summer 2018. And Laura Barton says... It's not always an easy album, but it's one that introduces Sophie as an artist led not so much by melody, but by finding physical textures in music. Whatever she makes you feel, it's a ferociously sensual work. Didn't you you see her, Jasper? I did see her. I saw her. And that's one of the things that for me is like PC music was just starting to happen while I was at university. And I played a lot of those records, Hey Cutie, GFOTY and... Hannah Diamond and and Sophie on my student radio show, which at the time was like I was trying to figure out what was happening in electronic music. There wasn't really a word for it at the time. And so all of that piece of music stuff was happening around London. So we went to a bunch of the gigs and I saw Sophie DJing in Peckham, which actually, even though it is pop, ultimately, fundamentally, a lot of it is bracing and excellent club music yeah, which, yeah. which goes really hard i mean if you listen to it it's worth listening to it loud on speakers or headphones with good bass because it really is physical it's physical music i think she's brilliant i mean i i did listen to that album when it came out and subsequently i've discovered things like hey cutie which i absolutely love and it sort of I mean, it kind of reminds me at moments of like even Aphex Twin and stuff like that. Yeah. Because it's, it's just so, it's so sort of brilliantly artificial. I wanted to ask, I mean, Nick, because your son yeah. operates in the sort of sphere oh, of yeah. electronic music as perambulator, doesn't he? And I just want, do, do uh, you have are perturbator. you a perturbator? I beg your pardon. <laughs> Where yeah. I got that from? Yeah. <laughs> Let me take that again. Your son operates in the sort of sphere of electronica as perturbator. That's it. And I want. Do you? Were you aware of Sophie? Is he aware of Sophie? He would. He would be aware of Sophie. I was not aware of Sophie. Okay. I'm not. Uh, I, I can't say that. I, that I have a great knowledge of my son's uh, the, the actual genre that he works in. Girl. I know about Sophie. Yeah, okay. 
the the wife oh. will say <laughs> Mrs. Kent knows about Sophie <laughs> contradicting me again. But uh, <laughs> yeah. well, at least she isn't saying you do know about Sophie, Nick. That would be embarrassing. Listen, I'm old school. In fact, yes. I heard my son's next record, which is coming out in May last night, and it's it's certainly Wagnerian. It's like you know, boy, if you if you it's getting he's he's got vocals this time, but most it's mostly instrumental, and it's you know. I've seen him live as well, actually. I saw oh, him what do at you the festival. Think? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm quite keen on that whole synthwave sort of side of, of electronic music. I thought it was certainly visceral and, and it's it's pretty dark. It's it's kind of Did he have a drummer with him? Quite possibly, yeah. It's it's, it's got it's got a lot of sort of like John Carpenter horror that's, movie yeah, that's sort of it. stylings. That's and it, it's yeah. and it's it is interesting. It's got this sort of <laughs> it's sort of retro futurist eighties eighties but transposed in a sort of alternate universe. <laughs> yes. Retro futurism is basically just the present. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But going going Go back, back to, to Sophie, Sophie. Yeah. going back to Sophie, I think that there's been a lot of of great stuff written about her previously and 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 now in the wake of her death. One writer who I'd really love to get on board on RBP is Sasha Geffen, wrote something that I find really interesting, which is Sophie's music isn't just about transness; its idiom is inherently trans. It traces the process of surfacing interiority. The impact of Sophie isn't just representation is that she started to figure out how to translate these hidden processes of perceiving and becoming into music. And I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it because, and another thing that Sasha says is that she essentially acted as as if the world that she wanted already existed. And I think that's a tremendously powerful way to be because, you know, it's, it's sort of like, well, sod everyone that's telling me I can't do this. It's about possibility. It's about questioning what is real, what is authentic, and what do I get to do in those realms? And what she did within that was remarkable. Excellent. Good stuff. Thanks, Jasper. Thank you, Jasper. <laughs> I think she is extraordinary. And I mean, what what do we know about her death? I mean, it sounds like it was a, a tragic fall. She was climbing up something in order to see the full moon. Yeah. Right, right. And she fell. And she fell. All... Yeah. Yeah. That's awful. Just absolutely dreadful. I hope to get some more Sophie pieces on Rock's Back Pages. In the interim, we have this Laura Barton review, as you say. Even if I had just one single wish, wish I could have said this. It's okay to cry. There's then a teardrop in your eye. I never thought I'd see you cry. Just know whatever hurts, it's all mine. It's okay to it's time, Mark, to tell us about a handful, time permitting, of new arrivals in the library. Well, over the last two weeks, going briefly back to last week, Richard Green, the Beast. I don't know if Nick ever bumped into Richard Green at the enemy <laughs> office when he yeah, started. Yeah. <laughs> the Beast. Him interviewing Sly Stone in 1968 for the NME. This is Sly's first visit to the UK. They played the Lyceum. Very, very patched show. Anyway, this is slide before the fall, in a way. And he's talking about his sister Rose. He says, not only is she as beautiful as any woman around, she's as talented and as consistent as any other musician out there. He says, I'd like to record anything I want to record, sing anything I want to sing, say just what I want to say, and stay out of everybody's way. We've got Keith Oldham's last interview with Jimi Hendrix of Record Mirror 1970, and I won't do any quotes from Jimi. We've got actually that recording on our site, the audio recording. But Keith says, sometimes he smoked, drank, and ate the wrong things and made love to the wrong people. 
a bit like you or me, which I think is just a very nice sort of aside. Lillian Roxon, New York Sunday News, in her column, 1972, in the same week, she sees the New York Dolls and meets the Osmonds, which is kind of fairly marvellous. And she loves them both, which is one of the things I love about Lillian Roxon. She, she has room in her, her heart for both the New York Dolls and the Osmonds. Meeting the Osmonds, she says, Do you guys get fined for not smiling, I asked, since they smile all their time? Their answer was a big smile. And on the dolls at the Diplomat Hotel, the hero, David, lead singer of the dolls. He looks like Mick Jagger, sort of, only thinner and younger and punkier. One guy in the band looks just like Rod Stewart, or Ron Wood, maybe, or a little bit of both. There is also a pale Edgar Winter type wearing Mary Quant lipstick, and yet another guy with ringlets and thin, petulant, dark mouth of a Mark Bolan. It's more than the eye can take in at one glance. And I haven't even started telling you about their tights and chiffon dresses and platform boots. It's, it's lovely. That <laughs> Great may, stuff. That may be our very earliest dolls piece on the site. So it's a, re- it's a real good one. Well, she would have seen them at the Mercer Arts Centre. Yeah, that was at Diplomat Hotel. It was some event at the Oh, Diplomat the Diplomat Hotel. Hotel, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This week, Eric Clapton, 1966, just after Cream had formed. And, he, you know, he, he's miserable as always. He, this man is always miserable. But he says, my technique seems to be getting too good for the stuff I'm trying to get across. I'm getting very fast and I'm not sure that's what I want, which is actually not a bad point. Then he says, pop groups all very well, but when it comes to real playing, they're nothing. So, you know, there you go. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> Graham Nash, still in the Hollies, early 1968 to Alan Smith. And he says, I have strong religious beliefs. I believe in God very much. God is the spark of life in everything, in us, in animals, in wood, in things. In wood. Um, <laughs> Don't um, forget the wood. Very nice. So we got a Philip Elway review of Charlie Gillett's Sound of the City for the San Francisco Examiner in 71. Uh, he's very, very complimentary about it. Not so keen on Charlie Gillett's prose, but his, thinks the, the book is fairly marvellous. A couple of just very swift ones. John Lydon, very early pill interview, 1978. Contrary to popular opinion, I've never taken heroin. Sure, they used to say it was in my eyes and all that shit. I really never seriously realised the consequences of being a member of the Pistols and talking the way I did. It's a very good interview. I mean, he comes over rather well. Well, we we sort of have to mention Nick's escapades with the Pistols and McLaren here briefly. We can't talk about it very long, but one of the most notorious stories about you, Nick, is that you were assaulted by the late Sid Vicious. Oh. I think it was a bike chain, wasn't it? We, won't, we don't need to dredge all that up, but you were very nearly in the Sex Pistols, and that, I, I can't really let this go without mentioning that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, in 1975, I I worked with them for in a, in a rehearsal room for uh, a month, two, three, well, maybe two months, three months. This was before Leiden was a, a member, so it wasn't really the Sex Pistols. It was they were called the Sex Pistols. McLaren was there. There was Matlock. There was Jones, and there was Cook, and there was me. They had. They had another guitar player who was, in fact, the best musician in the group, but they they wanted to get rid of him. And they and McLaren just said, well, pointed to me and said, well, you go in his place. There's a kind of fate accompli. And as I'd never actually been in a rock group before, I'd never actually played in a, in a, in a group, I thought, well, I might as well give it a shot. I, I didn't think much would come of it. These guys were all four years younger than me. They were still living with their parents, and they were, and Jones and Cook weren't exactly the the brightest, you know, sparks in the tool shed. 
you know, McLaren and I started having different views on how the group should uh, develop. McLaren didn't really want the group <laughs> okay. to develop musically. Okay. And, okay. you know, there was, was the usual ending. The Sid Vicious thing was, there were two people. There was Jar Wobble, who, in fact, had a bike chain. Which, uh, no, Sid had the bike chain, and Jar Wobble had a knife, which he was sticking in my face, like two inches from my eyes during the assault. So I was attacked by two people. I'd just like to bring point that out. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, because, it, because I was stuck in a chair with one, one guy who had a knife to my face uh, and another guy was beating me on, over the head with a chain with a very hard lock, which had it hit my scalp, could have, you know, done God knows sure. what kind of damage. So it wasn't, it wasn't like being thrown up on. You know what I mean? Right, there were no. possibly terminal consequences to their actions. Sure. So yeah. um, it's a pretty unsavoury story, I have to say. Well, the thing that the thing the thing that really really pissed me off and pisses me off a little to this day is that they tried to they tried to make me a victim once, and they tried to make me a victim twice in the press, and the press went along with it. You know, suddenly the second guy wasn't mentioned. Suddenly the story becomes it's me and two other guys attacking Sid Vicious. This happened in Sounds magazine, okay? So suddenly this story is completely perverted. You know, fake news didn't start with Donald Trump. (laughs) So that was an interesting experience. Yeah, no, I bet it was. I've got one more piece I want to mention, which is Terry Hall being interviewed by Rich Grable, Fun Boy 3's Terry Hall, just after the special. And he's talking about Jerry Jammers. He says, it's a political thing with Jerry. He'd rather be in Russia. When we drove through Berlin to play inside the Iron Curtain, he thought he was in heaven. Which I just, <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> I just, just to mention a very good interview with Lee Perry by David Toot from The Times in 1990. And Bill Brewster's extensive interview with Tom Moulton, the man who in, in, invented the 12-inch mix basically which is for anyone interested in dance music is absolutely fascinating so that's my lot how that's about you, you thank you, you very well, much I, i've got nothing this week and so i'll just hand over to jasper to wrap things up really i'll just continue the theme that mark was talking about dance music there's a fantastic six thousand word feature in from pitchfork in 2017 simon reynolds telling the story of donna summer and Giorgio moroda's i feel love and it's it's great. He he talks to Pete Belote. He talks to Giorgio Moroder, and and it's it's really interesting. And I think one of the curious things about it is that it was the sort of birth of of a certain kind of electronic synth driven pop dance music. Yeah. But what I didn't know was that actually the drumming is a live drummer. It's not sequenced because. The only problem was that despite its famously fat, full sound, the Moog couldn't deliver the right punch for the kick drum. And so, compromising their all-electronic conception for I Feel Love, Moroder and Belotti were forced to call on the human, hands-on services of Keith Forsey, who played with, like, Amon Dool and, and, and on, like, Billy Idol's records. and Produced Billy Idol's records. I've yeah. got a great yes. story, which I won't tell you today, but it's a very <laughs> funny story about Next the, week. Billy Idol and Keith Forsey. <laughs> but it's interesting that, on that sort of all electronic concept that that it's actually a live drummer playing it. And I wonder if that's part of what gives it that 
that it's, it's still an incredible record if you listen to that record phenomenal so that's a great one to look at there's a rather fabulously inane interview with john bon jovi by precious williams in the daily telegraph in which he complains about kate moss being on the cover of magazines at which point precious williams points out wasn't kate moss always on the covers of magazines does he mean <laughs> does he mean katie holmes and he goes yeah her but <laughs> But it's just very funny. I mean, like, what's she doing on the cover of magazines? Do you <laughs> yes. think she's a model or something? Who does you know? she think she is? Who does yeah. she think she is? Yeah. Great. Anyway, great. I just thought it was funny. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. All right, brilliant. Well, look, I mean, we've come to the end of the episode and it remains for all of us to thank you, Nick, for joining us and to just say again that your novel, The Unstable Boys, is published this week by Constable. And yeah, that's it. Anything you guys want to add? We're going to go out with Iggy talking about the anger of the Stooges. What's happening in a fortnight? Barbie? So in a fortnight, we have, we've got another legend of the music press, Caroline Boucher, if that's even how you oh, pronounce really? it. Oh, really? Yeah, who wrote a lot for like Disc and so forth, slightly just before your time. But you both had this in common. You both interviewed Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. So we'll be talking to her. She she later become, became That's the food true, yeah. editor on The Observer. And I love the idea that the food editor of The Observer was a huge fan of Captain Beefheart in 1970. <laughs> so we'll look forward to talking to Caroline about that. Well, stranger things have happened. Yes, they have. <laughs> but listen, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. And thanks to Laurence for her technical assistance. Best of luck with the novel and all future endeavours. Well, thanks for inviting me. Take care, Barney. <laughs> Love and Love and peace. <laughs> In our origins, all we really had in common was anger. Much like what I read about in the papers now uh, with some of the some of the new band new groups here, we really just had a great a great anger in common against uh, against what what we considered uh, what we considered uh, fools masquerading as artists, and uh, what I still consider exa- in exactly the same light uh, in most of the music business and uh, the related arts. That was Iggy Pop in conversation with Stuart Grundy in 1977, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Nick Kent. His first novel, The Unstable Boys, is published by Constable and Out Now. The hosts were Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. (laughs) 